Welcome back to episode seven of the South London Press Football Pod. I'm your host, Edmund Brack. And as always, I'm joined by the South London Press sports editor, Richard Corley. Rich, a full week of midweek fixtures for our EFL clubs. Uh, These past couple of days, the paper's just been sent off. How's your week been? It's been tiring. Very, very tiring. (laughs) Um, I had a bit of pleasure on Monday in that I went to uh, Fulham uh, with my lad uh, and the tickets were... Comp, comp tickets that Adam Sells, uh, who people will know, probably regular listeners will know, obviously he's a columnist for us uh, and all round good egg. He'd, he'd sorted out uh, tickets for that. So uh, I wouldn't say it was relaxing watching the game, uh, certainly, but so I was at that. And then I was uh, at the Charlton game on the Tuesday. Uh, good win for them in the end. Um, and then the logistics of getting the paper done meant that I had to tune in to watch the the Millwall defeat at Ipswich Town on on Wednesday night so yeah it's been a busy one I know that you you, you caught the Wimbledon Gillingham game as well so yeah mixed bag of results uh, for for our teams uh, that mm. were, were, were involved in midweek I don't think we've had a week yet where we've been doing this podcast where every single team that we cover is one uh, I don't know whether that's uh that's on us or, or what the problem is yeah it's um it's always weird. You sort of, I mean, the, the ideal scenario was at the back page of the paper uh, would have been, uh, Ips, you know, if, if Millwall had gone to Ipswich and got a point or one, I mean, considering Ipswich's record at home, which we might touch on in a bit, that would have been a hell of an achievement in the league. Uh, but uh, if we'd had that, it would have made it a nice picture for the back page. Instead, uh, although Kevin Nisbet's, uh, Brian Tonk's picture of Kevin Nisbet scoring for Millwall's on the back page, uh, it wasn't. Uh, it was probably a fairly small consolation, really, when you consider mm. the overall game. But anyway, I'm sure we'll get into that. So yeah, but no, I don't think we've had the clean sweep. It's always nice when you get that. Uh, we're actually going to start with 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 Palace this week after the sad news that that came out on Sunday that Terry Venables had, had passed away at the age of 80. Um, I've spent this week, uh, well, the start of the week, talking to people who, who knew him, who, who worked with him, who played under him, just to get a real vibe uh, of, of what he was like as a coach and a person for this week's paper. I don't know if you wanted to start on it, Rich. Yeah, it's a really nice piece. I, I'd, I'd advise anyone to check it out on the website uh, or in the actual paper itself. Um, you obviously spoke to... To, to Jim Cannon, you spoke to Peter Taylor, and you also got quotes off Alan Smith and Vince Allaire. So you, you you got a, a number of different people talking about Terry Venables. Um, in terms of uh, his team of the eighties at Palace, I couldn't remember it too well. I mean, I was around at that age because I'm so old, but I don't remember it particularly well. I remember Terry Venables more for uh, UR ninety six. Uh, probably the last time I was really properly invested in an England team uh, and obviously we went so very very close in that tournament and yeah certainly was one that sort of gripped the nation I also remember his second spell at Palace and from what I can recollect uh, Terry Venables wasn't madly keen on coming back to Palace but at that time Mark Goldberg was absolutely hell-bent on getting him in and I can remember, because I was at the paper the first time round, uh, my first spell was when Venables was, was at the club. And um, I think, basically, Mark Goldberg just kept adding more and more financial sort of kickers almost to the deal that eventually it became so good that, that, that Terry did decide to come back. But certainly that first time around was the real success story for Palace, wasn't it, Ed? Although, obviously, it's well, well, well before your time. Yeah, so. The, the main sort of thrust of the piece was um, just the wonderful stories people had to tell of him, whether it was Alan Smith talking about sitting outside Scribes, the uh, nightclub that Terry Venables owned, where they'd have a glass of Chardonnay or two and, and taxi drivers would be hooting their horn at, at Terry Venables and he'd sort of wave back at them. Peter Taylor, who came across as a... Just, let, just wanted to let everyone know that he was a real coach's coach, um, that, although he liked to have sort of 
quote unquote fun outside of football. He was a very serious man. And once he got onto that pitch, it was it was completely about work. And um, Vince Hilaire told some great stories. Uh, he told one of um, which we're going to hear from quite soon. Uh, we've got a little audio clip from Vince talking about it uh, when he accidentally bought uh, Kenny Sampson's car off him. But I won't divulge into that too much. And Jim Cannon, who, who really sort of got across that Terry Venables' coaching methods were way ahead of their time. Um, he spoke about what Manchester City are doing now or what every team tries to do now with the sort of high press and that Venables would make them do eight versus seven in training, always have an overload, attackers versus defenders. Um, yeah, it was a truly sad day for football. I think one of the main things that sort of came across in my mind when I was writing the piece that this sort of felt like the South London style Busby Babes, bringing a whole host of players through the academy, young, hungry players, um, who, and they built this team that, that rose from the third division to, to reach the top of the first division um, only for a brief period. I think the season sort of dwindled away and they ended up finishing 13th. But I think it's important to remember that although it was dubbed the team of the 80s, that was from the media and people outside of Crystal Palace. That wasn't Crystal Palace dubbing themselves the team of the 80s. It was much the perception of, of those who had watched it from the outside. Um, some wonderful players came through Steve Kemba, Vince Hilaire, Jim Cannon as I mentioned um, and it was a, a team that would live long in, in Crystal Palace memory I think the sort of standout line from it was Alan Smith saying that it it led the blueprint or set the blueprint for future Crystal Palace teams so wingers cutting in, Vince Hilaire, Wilfred Zaha, Yannick Balassi, these sort of players and, and the mould and blueprint of what a Crystal Palace team should look like um, yeah so check it out in, in this week's paper because it's a, it's a wonderful tribute from people who know him. Yeah, it definitely is. I wanted to just flip it around for a second here. Obviously, we're talking about a former Palace manager. Let's fast forward now to the current Palace manager, Roy Hodgson. Mm. And obviously, one of the general themes that gets mentioned quite a bit is, where, or things that comes up, is that whenever Palace do lose or don't get good performances, there's dissatisfaction on social media. There's questions about uh, Roy Hodgson's style of play and obviously off the back of the defeat at Luton uh, there were some press reports linking Steve Cooper um, with, mm. with Palace and sort of talking about the fact that you know although Steve Parrish isn't particularly looking to make a change that he could be under pressure if results don't turn I, I wonder what you made of that Ed and what you'd managed to sort of hear yourself on this I think the main thing to, to try and get across is that every Premier League manager is probably four or five games of being quite under pressure or, or at risk of losing their job, especially when there's so many sort of top managers out there and available. Julian Lopetegui is the one that immediately springs to mind. I think he's been to Palace games in the past few weeks. So linking those two together is, is the one that would come to the forefront of your mind. But in terms of Roy Hodgson, this is very much his job to walk away from, I'd imagine. He gave Crystal Palace time over the summer to, to look out and to see who was there, who they wanted to bring in, and whether there was a better option available. Uh, there wasn't, so they returned to Roy Hodgson after the wonderful job that he did in the final 10 games of last season. Without Wilfred Zaha, he kind of got Eze and Elise playing their, their best stuff of their career to date, which got Eze into the England team. And when Eze sat in his first England press conference saying he wouldn't be here without Roy Hodgson, it, it almost nailed the job on for him. Um, the start of the season... Granted, I don't think that Crystal Palace truly strengthened their squad to where it needed to be. Um, you lose arguably the greatest ever player in Wilfred Zaha, the talisman who's dragged the club through so many difficult moments and you fail to replace him. You bring in a £26 million project in Mateus Francho, who, um, although there's a lot of hype and expectation about what he could be, perhaps probably isn't ready to, to set the Premier League stage alight as of yet. Um, there's also glaringly sort of obvious other areas of the squad which needs addressing. Joel Ward, a fantastic servant to the football club, but Coley Osho's performance for Burnley the other week might have shown maybe one or two that perhaps it might be time to to look for a new right back. They never truly replaced Aaron Wambasaka. Of course, they brought in Nathan Ferguson, but he's had his injury problems and um, again picked up that hamstring injury uh, a few months ago now, or a few couple of weeks ago, which sort of is going to set him sidelined again for for a long while. So linking. Steve Cooper to Palace obviously makes sense. He was a candidate when Patrick Vieira got the job the first time round when Hodgson did leave. Um, I think he was someone the club probably spoke to. But in terms of him being interviewed in the summer, I don't think that report is is accurate. I don't think Palace did speak to Steve Cooper. They definitely spoke to Brendan Rodgers. That was a, a name that was touted around. But I don't think um, 
I don't think Cooper was one who was actively being interviewed for the job. He's obviously under a little bit of pressure at Nottingham Forest, although I saw a report yesterday suggesting that, that his job is safe for the time being. I think naturally with the job that he did with the England under-18 squad, was it the one that won the World Cup or was it the under-17 squad off the top of my head? I can't quite remember. I think it was the under-17 squad where they won the World Cup in, in India. Um just the job that he could do with young players is obviously what links him to Palace. Palace have a tremendous set of, of young players, the likes of Elise, Mark Gahey, who he's worked for, worked with before at England level. Um, so that's why that that one probably springs to mind. But in terms of Roy Hodgson and, and his job being under threat, Palace's record hasn't been great of late. They've they've only won one in six in the Premier League. But if Palace are to go through this next period without Ebrich as they check the Corey, obviously the Corey's out for the long term. We'll touch on that in a minute. And Palace are involved in the relegation battle. There's probably only one man out there that that you'd look at it and think this is the perfect guy to to galvanize the squad, galvanize the squad, and and to drag Palace out of it. Um, I think it's pretty remarkable that they're on 15 points already, considering this squad has regressed from where it was last season. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 Adam Sells was. Um, at Kenilworth Road with you and Ernie's takeaways one of the things he mentioned was that the best team doesn't always win just the team that scores mm. the most goals he said that for the second game in succession Palace were better in every metric aside from the one that matters and he touched on the fact that Rob Edwards recognised that you know Luton were had some good fortune uh, that was in the post-match press conference so I know that uh, you, you've touched on it there. Again, it now looks like Eberetche Eze is going to be out for a few weeks. Check the Corre a long-termer. Selzy um, um, gets a bit of stick at times from some of the fan base for the way that he supports Roy Hodgson. I think the thing that he makes the point is that when Roy Hodgson has the right attacking players available and isn't heavily depleted, you do get to see a Roy Hodgson team play the way he can get them playing. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's something I'd agree with. I think some of the best football I've watched as a as a Palace fan, although for any, anybody who thinks that I'm, uh, I'm biased in any way towards Crystal Palace, uh, I, I try to report on them quite fairly and objectively. Um, I think some of the best football that I've watched um, is when Roy Hodgson's been in charge. And that was his first sort of season in charge where he had Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Wilfred Zaha, Andros Townsend, Johan Kabai, really sort of talented set of four players. Luka Milivojevic was playing some of his best football as well. He brought Aaron Wambasaka through. That was really exciting stuff. Then there was another period where we brought Mitchie Batshuayi on, on loan. I remember we beat Cardiff, I think it was 4-2, something along those lines towards the, the end of the season. And then we also beat Bournemouth 5-3. And Palace were, stats-wise, the third best team in the Premier League for that second half of the season. Some really, really exciting stuff. And then when Hodgson comes back again, after Vieira set up in a slightly pragmatic way, didn't have a shot on target for three games in the Premier League running. And Ebrich Yeze and Michael Elise increased their value tenfold with some of the football that they're playing. It was really exciting towards the end of last year. So, uh, And I think I'm probably of a... The Palace fans sort of base of, of my era probably don't remember the championship too much, but watching some of the football there was pretty dire. Just surviving in the championship isn't fun. There's there's nothing good about going down. The Premier League is where, is where it's at. It's where it's all happening. So, um, no, I, I, I'd probably back Selzy in that respect to say that Roy Hodgson does deliver good football when he has the attacking options at his disposal. But at the moment, he's got Jeffrey Schlupp, Jordan Ayew and a few untested players who have great potential. Um, now he has Michael Elise back there, obviously. You know, he's, he's a wonderful talent, just uh, highlighted by that wonder goal he scored on Saturday. But the football can't be as good because it aren't as good. And I think that's probably the bottom line of it. As you mentioned, Michael Elise, he helped save my FPL team <laughs> last week. I I did bring him in. I I, I asked for a bit of advice from a few uh, few people uh, and uh, it came up trumps. So was was perfectly happy with that lovely finish. Uh, I guess the yeah. difficulty is West Ham next up without Eze, uh, as we said, you haven't got Wilf Zaha anymore. Sometimes some of your attacking players, if you if West Ham are looking at it, they can probably nullify one player or two players easier than three or four. So it underlines again the fact that really there probably isn't the kind of offensive talent there that, that they need. But in terms of the um in terms of the team news at this point, I know we're speaking before Roy Hodgson's press conference, but where do we think things are at for the for the West Ham game? Well, it's a 
added to the result the the injuries that Palace sort of succumbed to at Kenilworth Road made the uh, the afternoon even more disastrous. Sheik Decore is uh, is probably going to be out for the season with a ruptured Achilles that he suffered in the game. It was a it was a really weird injury, Rich. Like uh, the press box at Kenilworth Road, you're sort of looking right onto the pitch. It's, it's a very good view for for the sort of style of stadium, but. Um, he sort of went down as his knee hit his other knee. And I thought, oh, he's slightly innocuous. He'll probably get back up in a second. And and rapidly the stretcher was brought over. So you could tell it wasn't a good injury. And he and he walked past me when uh, he was stretched off. And you could tell he was in he was in agony. So came out on, on uh, Sunday evening. We obviously did the story as well that, that he's out to, set to be out for the next sort of six months or so, which will rule him out of the Africa Cup of Nations in January. And then on Eberich, yeah. Also picked up an injury in the first half. He tried to play on in the second half, but quickly went down again and was forced off. Um, he's set to be out for three to four weeks, which rules him out of a, a really, really sort of crucial period for Palace. They've got West Ham on Sunday, Bournemouth on Wednesday night, which is a, the biggest game that they probably have this week. And then Liverpool again on the Saturday in the early kickoff. So a big week of football for Palace. Um, David Ozo has been promoted from the under-21 team to train with the first team. He's a, a midfielder, sort of defensive midfielder. So he'll take that role I wouldn't suggest that he'd be starting for one minute but he'd sort of fill that role on the bench where one of Will Hughes, Jairo Riedewald, um, a another might get promoted into the starting 11 for Sunday. Uh, in terms of attacking wise I thought it was really interesting when I asked uh, Hodgson about Matthias Francher last week in the press conference he he name-checked Ahamada as someone who's done really well in training. It wasn't a question that I asked him or anyone else asked him. He he pushed him forward for the quote. So um, I, that would probably suggest to me that he's won the trust a little bit more. He's He's been brought off the bench seven times this season. He's the sort of go-to player if Palace are chasing a goal or, or looking to, to create something for the win. So, um, But also, Ben Hodgson, and he has had a pretty unlucky run with injuries this season. Um, Hodgson had these type of injuries before. He played John-Philippe Mateta through the middle and Odson Edward as the 10, and that's something I can easily see happening as well on, on Sunday. I think Mateta, um, he had a good start to the season, perhaps faded away a little bit, but um, there is a player there when, when called upon. So there are still options. I wouldn't suggest that the injury crisis is as bad as when we played Fulham and Nottingham Forest and had to call upon five academy players from the bench. But um, it's, uh, it, it's considering that the run has been as bad as it is, um, Hodgson's sort of hands are, are now firmly tied behind his back with, with what he can put onto the pitch with, with the loss of Eze and Shek Takora. I'm Zion Fleming and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. You're now going to hear a, a little bit of Vince Hilaire as, as he sort of reminisces about his time with Terry Venables. Um, when we come back, we're, we're going to jump into Charlton who, uh, who beat Cheltenham 2-1 at the Valley on Tuesday night. The biggest, I'll show you what sort of influence he had on me and all the other young players. I bought the Triumph Stag which is, uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, mm. sports car back. Right, okay. You can look them up. It's a sports car, but it's a Triumph Stag, yeah. in the mid-70s. And um, I was quite happy that, you know, I got this sports car, this Triumph Stag, and I, I came in one morning and said morning to the lads, and I, and I said, where's Kenny, Kenny Sansom? And I said, oh, Kenny's in with the boss. I don't know what he's talking to the boss about. And then Ken, Kenny, uh, Kenny's come out, and... Uh, He's gone to me, Teddy's gone to me, uh, thanks, Vince. And I thought, what's he saying thanks for? What's he on about? And then with that, Terry, Terry's called me in his office. And I went, all right, boss. He said, yeah. He said, uh, you've just bought Kenny's car. <laughs> I went, oh? He said, you've just bought Kenny's car. He's got some financial problems. And uh, buying his car will, will, you know, will help him out. Yeah. And uh, I said, OK, cheers, boss. I didn't even know. And you know what car it was? What a was Triumph Stag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I had, for about three weeks, I had two Triumph Stags. And uh, my point is, if Ter- if Terry Terry Venable said, "Jump off the um, jump off that building," yeah, as young players, we do it. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich, you were at the Valley on Tuesday night. Uh, another good win for Michael Appleton's Charlton side. Uh, I think there's seven points or so off the playoffs off my head. I need to have a look again. Might be might be fewer than that, but they're uh, they're doing well, aren't they? And Alfie May obviously uh, scoring a double again. Yeah, no, that's right. You seven points off the playoffs, um, and I mean they have got matches in hand on some of the teams above them, but not so much. So, well, 
They've got one in hand on Peterborough in fifth, two in hand on Stevenage in fourth. Uh, but it was an important win because some of the other results didn't totally go their way. You know, Derby winning at Port Vale, they're in the, the, the last sort of playoff space. Um, Barnsley, uh, obviously people might have seen the highlights of the goal that was given uh, for their for their winner where the, the player barged the keeper or touches the keeper. I think the keeper should be a bit, should be a bit stronger, to be honest. Um, but... Um, yeah, so there were results there that meant that they needed to get the result. And um, it's same old story, uh, Alfie May scoring goals, another two, both penalties. Uh, I, th- I thought um, there was a very good shout, actually, for another penalty in the first half when I thought Lewis Freestone, the, the Cheltenham defender, looked to have handled uh, Slobodan Tenich's uh, cross uh, just before half-time. And if Charlton get that, penalty before half time in a back in front or in front for the first time of the night. Uh, maybe the second half becomes more straightforward, but I thought they largely controlled the game, uh, particularly in that second period. And then, you know, I've said to you before that I think this team has got a chance for the playoffs. And I sort of stand by that because you look at it now, um, since they um, lost to Bolton at the Valley, uh, they've won at Wigan. And, and played pretty well there. And, you know, the defensive vulnerabilities made the scoreline closer when they won 3-2. They got a, a good point at Portsmouth. They got a point away at Carlisle. And then they win their home game against Cheltenham. And their home form under Michael Appleton has been good. Uh, if you're drawing away winning at home, that's, you know, you're averaging four points every couple of matches. You're going to be right up there. And in terms of the stats under Michael Appleton, um, it's quite interesting, actually. So his record, I think, well, since September the 1st, Charlton's record played 13, 23 points, 25 goals for, 17 against, points per game, 1.77. If you times that out over the course of a 46-game season, that's 81 points. So 81 points is definitely going to get you in the playoffs. The thing that, the issue that they've got, really, is that um, they need to make sure that they maintain this kind of rough, points return because they've got ground to make up on the teams above them. But um, yeah, it's been a positive, uh, positive few weeks. I think they now dip out of the league for FA cup duty at Gillingham. They then got the EFL trophy at Reading next week. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it was a good performance. The one big worry was Miles Lieburn uh, stretching for a ball in the first half went down, wasn't moving, and you know that's never a good sign. And he came off holding his right hamstring. They've already got Chooks and EK out injured as well, Charlton. And so, uh, uh, Bayban Tedic came on. I thought he was quite bright for a little period at the end of that half, start of the second half. Missed a good chance at the start of the second half. But it was interesting. Michael Appleton said that he'd been asking for more out of him. And of what I've seen of him, he would be a player that I would think as it stood, certainly before Miles Lieburn's injury, uh, maybe Charlton would have looked at whether they wanted to keep the loan going. And as always with these things, I don't know exactly who has the final say on this because I think it also applies to Panucci Camera, who's obviously had plenty of injury issues, unfortunately, since he's been at the club, and Chem Campbell, who yet again was missing. I think that's the fifth matchday squad in a row that he's not been in. These loans are taking up finances and Charlton look like they want to be relatively active in the January window. And I don't know if you can do that unless you you get some players out the door. Do you think the one thing that might be holding them back slightly in terms of a a playoff push is these these injuries? Chucks and EK, now Miles Lieburn as well, injuries in key sort of positions to them. And and two players who kind of bring the best out of Alfie May as well from from what I've seen from afar in recent sort of weeks. Yeah, I think... um... I mean, Michael Appleton made a point in his post-match press conference about the fact that people were talking about Alfie May not playing through the middle. And it's interesting that managers are kind of made aware of these things because one of the reactions um, I saw on social media on the Tuesday was people saying Alfie May's wasted on the right. But Michael Appleton was saying that him not playing as the main out-and-out striker allows him to get in the box later. It allows him to time his runs. It means he's not static, that he's not going to be easily marked. And he was saying, Alfie May's doing all right, isn't he, for someone that's being played out of position. So it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment by Michael Appleton. I think Alfie May 
I, I just think that he's so bright that he tends to be involved in the best attacking moments, regardless of who's on the pitch. But the problem now is that Miles Lieburn is an excellent uh, central striker. You know, he's a big, he's a, he's, he's big. He can hold the ball. He can physically challenge defenders, and he's also got the mobility that he can he can basically chase people down. And he's very mobile. Boban Tedic, in the games I've seen, like I said, I've not been that impressed. He had a shot that was pushed around the post, but the chance he had in the second half, which came from an Alfie May pass, I think he needs to be doing better with that. So it could be something that impedes them definitely up to the January window. The indications I'd had was that they were already looking to bring a striker in in January. Mm. Um, and I think that will only still be the case because Miles, unfortunately, has had a few injuries this season. Uh, Chooks, we know, does tend not to be available for chunks of the campaigns. So I think it's got to be a priority signing for Charlton. And it could potentially, if they get it right, it could really take them to the next level. You spoke with Alfie May after the game. I unfortunately uh, interrupted the uh, slight little press conference, uh, the interview via by calling, and he uh, picked up on that. Um, but in terms of some, speaking to someone, you could tell instantly from his quotes or from listening to him that this is a player full of confidence. He's really enjoying his his football at Charlton Athletic. Yeah, do you know the thing with the phone thing? Just going back to it, is that I always tend to have every single setting on so that it doesn't uh, doesn't do anything at all uh, because. You're always paranoid that if, say, a team's lost or whatever, someone might send you a text message about it because they know you're at the game. And then yeah. a manager's sat there and they say they see something you don't want them to see in the sense that someone's kind of making some kind of comment about how bad they've been or something like that. Um, this time the phone didn't ring because I did have the setting off on that, but the screen lit up. And as you said, um, Alfie, um, Alfie made a little joke about it. But yeah, he was in really high spirits. I mean, he's on. He's just on a ridiculously good run of form. I mean, we we we, we talked about it before that, you know, the uh, the Erling Haaland comparison in terms of league goals, and obviously Erling Haaland's playing at a very high level. Um, but I mean, he's now got twenty nine uh, in the league in in twenty twenty three and uh, seventeen goals this season. He took the penalties well. Um, he actually said uh, that he spoke to Henderson at half time to say like where should I put the other penalty where would you not want it as a goalkeeper because obviously Luke Southwood the Cheltenham goalkeeper knows Alfie May really well um and he actually followed what what what, what Stephen Henderson told him to do which was to sort of put it put it to the keeper's left so um yeah he didn't also he said he wasn't going to celebrate but he, he broke the rule he he did a he raised his hand to the covered end he he did a he did celebrate it and he also did the tunnel jump, the trademark tunnel jump with Lloyd Jones when, when Charlton win. Obviously, a couple of players tend to come out and do a little leap in the air. Um, but he sort of said afterwards that, um, you know, I owed it to the Charlton fans to celebrate. So uh, it was down the other end. He did go over and clap the Charlton fans afterwards. But yeah, he's been a blinding signing for, for Charlton. I mean, off the top of my head, if you look at the signings they've made this season, he's got to be seen as the most successful. Although I'd also say, I think Lloyd Jones has settled in really nicely um, mm. at centre-back as well. Um, he's been consistent. He's played a really good run of games. And I think, again, he's been a, he's been a decent addition to the squad. We're going to turn this segment of the pod also into the question section as we had quite a few Charleston Athletic questions in this week, Rich. Um, first one comes from Will Brook. He wants to know whether Daniel Carnu will be recalled because of Miles' uh, injury, uh, as it seems that Appleton is keen to play the young players such as Micah Mabrick up front as well. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't think... Um, at the moment, Michael Appleton was asked again about... He's been asked about before recently mm. when Chooks got injured. He got asked about it again on Tuesday, uh, whether Dan Carnu would be coming back. And what he said before was that Dan Carnu... The feeling was that he was a bit messy with some of his sort of link play and that he needed the games and he needed to be playing regularly week in, week out. And so I've got to be honest, I don't think right now that it sounds that likely that Dan Carney will be coming back. Um, obviously, Mike Bick has been a player that uh, Michael Appleton's talked again about the other day about the quality and talent that he's got. So I think at the moment... That might be the way that they go. The only thing is, of course, 
it'll be interesting to see what the lineup is at Gillingham on Saturday because now that now that some of the striker options have been depleted, there obviously do you risk playing some of those your first choices for an FA Cup game? I think they probably do. You know, you're one game away from an FA Cup third round draw where you could get a really good draw. But I do wonder if Michael and Bick comes on and does well and plays minutes, then maybe you don't need to do that. Um, if he doesn't manage to impress, then maybe you do think about bringing Dan Carney back. Um, they've also got Patrick Casey, who scored five goals for the under-21s the other day. Um, I did ask Michael Appleton on Tuesday night whether he'd been training with the first team, and he said not too much in terms of integration. But he did say that that can change. You know, that may change now. So they have got some other options there. Uh, but I wouldn't say they've got a real sort of wide op- you know they, they've not got a lot of options in that position but that's that's the answer on Dan Carnu as it stands I've certainly not been told that he is definitely going to be getting recalled yeah uh, next question comes from Glenn Marshall who wants to know what the state of players with, with Charlie Kirk in the January window obviously left out of the uh the FA Cup squads wasn't he against uh Cray Paper uh Cray Valley Paper Mills so uh might suggest that there could be an exit on the cards for Charlie Kirk this this window yeah, I think I think it's the normal thing that happens in this scenario that with Charlie Kirk, he was a player that Charlton would have let go in previous windows. So whether it's going to be more difficult to move in this, you know, if you look at if you look at it, Charlie was out on loan last season at the end of it. He's now not near the first team picture, really. Um, and I think the difficulty is how do you he hasn't really produced anything that's going to whet the appetite of other clubs that want him. And the problem you sometimes find is that when it comes to loan options, sometimes the actual finances involved just don't make it viable. I think I'm right in saying that when Wimbledon wanted Jake Forster-Kasky in one of the previous windows, they were looking at paying about £1,000 of Jake Forster-Kasky's wages uh, a week. And so for Charlton, that deal didn't happen at the end of the window. Charlton would have done it, actually, but they ran out of time. They prioritised trying to get a couple of deals in on that window. But there wasn't really much benefit to them. What, what's the point? So that's the big difficulty sometimes with moving players on. And, and people talk about paying up players as well. And, I mean, I'm not saying for one second that's happening with Charlie Kirk, but he signed a, a four-year deal. Um, so I think that runs into 2025. And normally when people talk about paying up players, the player has to be ready to take a settlement. If they're not, then a lot of the time, what's the benefit to a football club? It's got to make financial sense for them as much as it is for a player that says, I want all my money. So like I said, I'm not saying for one second that that's a conversation that's been had about Charlie Kirk, but Mm. it's why it makes it more tricky. And the kind of clubs that are going to be probably interested are not going to probably offer a really big portion of his wages. So that could make it, a harder one for them to move him on. Um, and I think, like I said, that they would do because he was a player that was available in the summer and it's not like he suddenly uh, progressed his status at Charlton. If anything, he's, he's further away from being involved with the first-team squad. Uh, and just finally, John Goss would uh, would like to recall Zach Mitchell back off loan uh, as cover from, from Colchester. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one with, 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 with Zach. I mean, I would have thought that I wouldn't have thought he'd be recalled. I mean, in terms of centre-back options, they've got Lucas Ness, who's on the bench already. Uh, Hector and Lloyd-Jones have been the first-choice pairing. Um, I think there's probably a few different options of players. I mean, obviously, you've got Terrell Thomas, who um, can play at centre-back as well. I think the key thing for some of these young players is to go out and get those matches, and, and Zach's been doing that. So I, I wouldn't necessarily envisage that, that changing any time soon. We're going to end part two there. We're going to bring that to a close. And when we come back, we're going to start on Millwall. I'm Jake Cooper, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich, we're going to touch on Millwall. Obviously, uh, played on Wednesday night, suffered a 3-1 defeat at Ipswich. You watched the game. What did you make of it? Well, uh, I think we knew it was going to be difficult because... You know, if you look at Ipswich's record, they've now won 16 of their last 17 league matches. They lost the other one, but they've scored 59 goals in that period. So uh, that, that run, as it were. So 
I, I think you knew it was going to be a difficult evening, about as difficult as it would come at, at, at any away ground. Um, the big issue, I think, is just how much Ipswich were able to really kind of just ease through the match. Uh, I thought that, you know, they, they, they scored two early goals. Uh, the first one by Connor Chaplin, it looks a good finish initially. I think when you watch it back, he doesn't really get a great connection. He kind of doesn't catch it totally cleanly, but it bounces down into the turf and and, and beats Bart Bielkowski. But um, I think a 2-0, Millwall had a couple of chances. Um, not really anything major, but Norton Cuffey and Ryan Longman with fairly comfortable saves for the keeper. But I remember making a note when I was watching the game that it felt like Ipswich had kind of eased off a little bit. They obviously then had the fourth goal, where, which again comes from uh, Millwall trying to play out and uh, ball out to Ida Marku being cut out and they, they work it across for Nathan Broadhead to head home. But 3-0 down after 39 minutes, it's, it's game done, basically. and. It felt that way in the second half. I thought that Millwall, Millwall were a bit better in the second half, but there were quite long passages where Ipswich just kept the ball and they weren't really, there was no real need for them to kind of uh, punish Millwall by adding loads more goals. I mean, Bart still made a couple of saves late on, very late on from, from a couple of the subs uh, to prevent a fourth from going in. But I mean, Wes Burner hit the, hit the post as well. They could take, Connor Chaplin was excellent. Uh, you know, they, they could take Chaplin off, they took Wes Byrne off, they took, you know, they took uh, uh, Broadhead off as well with more than 20 minutes to play. So it was pretty, I, I thought it wasn't, it, it wasn't obviously the performance that Millwall wanted. They were sloppy in possession. There was quite a few passes that went out of play when they weren't under real, real pressure. And when that's happening, you're never, ever going to build up any head of steam. And none of the attacking players... I mean, Zian Fleming, uh, Idamo and uh, Tom Bradshaw were placed in the second half. I didn't think any of them really impacted the game. And equally, they would probably say that what kind of real moments did they have to do that? It was uh, it was a difficult, difficult evening. Nice goal, nice sort of touched finish by Kevin Nisbet. But I think um, Sky was saying on their commentary that I think up until then, Millwall hadn't had a touch in the opposition box in that second half. So, yeah, it was a game done. I think they've got to brush themselves down as quickly as they can. It's easy to say that, but they've now had back-to-back losses. Um, and their league form is not particularly great. I think that in their last eight matches, they've now lost four, uh, drawn three. That puts them right down near the bottom of the form table for the championship over that period. And obviously, Joe Edwards didn't hold back really with his post-match stuff. I thought he was very honest, uh, considering he's a, 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 a head coach in a new role. He he basically said that that first half performance was just not acceptable. Yeah, um, Sunderland at home this weekend. Actually, I, I wanted to ask you about Jake Cooper dropping out of the team. Uh, obviously, Sean Hutchinson coming back in. I think that's the first time was it in fifty nine league games where Jake Cooper's been available that he, that he hasn't started for Millwall. So was that a, a surprise to you or just Joe Edwards tinkering with his squad to see what, what works best? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. Um, I mean, I uh, I think we touched on it the week before. I wasn't um, I wasn't at the game against Coventry uh, because of a very thrilling murder mystery weekend for my, my, my mother-in-law's part of her 70th birthday plans. And we did... Um, we did manage to catch the murderers. Is the I'm sure everyone was really concerned about knowing that. Um, it was very bizarre, but anyway, I'll leave that for another time. But um, my, my mother-in-law had a wizard's hat on and a cape because it was a, a magic-themed murder, which watching her quizzing suspects was, yeah, I felt like I drank a lot more than I actually did on the night. But, um, but so I didn't get to see the, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I didn't get to see the last match. Um, so whether there was something there that uh, Joe Edwards saw that he felt, you know, I mean, Sean Hutchinson, when he's fit, has tended to be a starter. But um, it's the fact that he preferred Murray Wallace on the left of the back three rather than Jake Cooper. Um, I thought, obviously, Murray Wallace at times had his hands full with, particularly down the wings, Ipswich were very, very strong. Um, and Wes Byrne sort of, I kept Ryan Longman busy. I mean, they went to a back five at the start of the game. So Longman and Norton Cuffey as the wing backs and then three centre backs, which obviously wasn't a 
particularly popular formation always with Millwall fans when Gary Rout was manager. But I think it was a nod to the fact that they might have to try and be uh, defensively resilient. And obviously it didn't really didn't really work because they did manage to punch through early on. Although in saying that, um, Ipswich's XG um, at half time was 0.40. So it wasn't super high. They had four shots on target and scored three of them. So or four efforts four efforts on target and scored three of them. Um, so yeah, so in terms of Jake Cooper, I wouldn't say that uh Coops has been any, you know, has performed any worse than any other sort of defender in recent weeks. I mean, Wes Harden's obviously been scoring goals as well. But um yeah, so interesting move by interesting move by Joe Edwards. I would think there's a fairly sh- strong chance that Kevin Nisbet now starts at the weekend. Um, he linked the play in the build-up to his goal. Uh, Tom Bradshaw sort of didn't really offer too much in that particular game. So I would think that's another player he might look at mixing it up. He might need to make some changes because he obviously he obviously wasn't happy with what he saw. Yeah, I watched the game as well. And I don't know whether you saw this, but I thought Honeyman made a, a little bit of an impact when he came on. Looked like he put himself about a bit obviously being at the game and watching it on tv are two completely different things but from uh from my bedroom he looked like he was uh putting in a good shift yeah he got booked didn't he very i think he got booked yeah. off about 25 seconds uh and it, it was a booking um and he i think he also um had another foul later on which i don't think was a yellow but i mean that would have just topped it off for Millwall if he if he got a second yellow and been out but um yeah i mean with Honeyman, you, you get that energy and that industry and he tries to make things happen. But I also didn't think there were stages in the second half where Ipswich had the ball and Millwall wouldn't really rush to press. But when they did press, Mill, uh, Ipswich would play around them normally fairly easily. So, yeah, I just, I mean, you know, in our match reports in the paper, we tend to put star man and we always try and try and put... Uh, you know, a, a home player or like one of our club's players as the man of the match. But I thought Connor Chaplin just basically ran it for them. His, his movement was so clever. He was dropping deep and they struggled with any kind of way of keeping him quiet. I guess if you were looking at best performer, you probably would say that Bart Bielkowski made a few saves. Uh, but I think it's it was pretty hard to pick out a decent, a decent Millwall performer. So, yeah. After the really promising start at Sheffield Wednesday, there's I don't think anyone doubted there was work to do, but this is looking a tough old season for, for clubs. Uh, when you look at some of the teams at the top of the table, it's it's a big old gap. And it's it, at the moment, I, I, it'd be interesting to see. I've, I've not asked Joe Edwards, but I wonder really what he thinks is now an attainable goal this season. Mm. Uh, managers don't really like to talk about things like that and put their ambitions out there in black and white, but... I don't think anyone was necessarily thinking that Millwall would be right in the playoff picture this season. But, you know, where they are now, they have got a gap, a comfortable gap over the bottom three. But um, it's not shaping up at the moment like they're going to be at that top end of the table challenging. And there were players whose form, Zian Fleming again, uh, there was one misplaced pass into the t- out of play in the first half. And I just feel like some of their attacking players are struggling at the moment to really to really get firing and that's 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 been a problem for them as well. Yeah. Uh, on a slightly more positive note, we have a interview with assistant manager Andy Myers in, in this week's paper. What did you what did he say to you when you spoke to him? Yeah, he we we, we spoke about his old role at Chelsea, um, which was interesting because he did the he was loan he, he had all these all these clubs, particularly Premier League clubs, had these sort of long fangled uh, titles. He was lone player technical coach. So in the summer, uh, well, before the season started or the window ended, he was working with the likes of Lukaku, Callum Hudson-Odoi, um, and he was prepping them for going out on loan. And so he would have five or six players, particularly, that he would follow when they're out on loan as well. So he got to watch quite a lot of football uh, at lower levels as well as at Premier League level. Um, so yeah, interesting, interesting chat with him. He he was celebrating his 50th birthday uh, at a Mickey Flanagan show when he got uh, the phone call from Joe Edwards saying, "Do you fancy coming with me? I've got the Millwall job." And uh, he's he's also had a spell himself where he managed, well not managed, he coached out at Vitesse Arnhem. So um, and that was for a season while he was at Chelsea. I think he actually left Chelsea 
and then came back. But yeah, talked about his playing career as well because he he was at Chelsea for quite a few years, uh, played over a hundred games for them, uh, won their Young Player of the Year award, uh, but um, was forced into retirement uh, by by a sort of prolapsed disc in his back. So yeah, quite a bit in there to sort of unpick, but it was good catching up with him. And um, obviously someone that knows Joe Edwards very well. And uh, yet again, someone that had a really long affinity with Chelsea. I think 16 years as a player and 16 years as a coach as well. Yeah. Join us back in part four, where we're going to round off the pods, touching on AFC Wimbledon's 1-0 defeat at Gillingham on Tuesday night. Uh, Welcome back to part four. I think it's part four. I'm losing my thread, but I think that's where (laughs) we're at. And we're on to AFC Wimbledon. And... Obviously, um, midweek action for the Dons, uh, and there was a power failure at um, at the Priestfield, and also a points failure in regard to Wimbledon <laughs> because they ended up um, not taking anything from the match. Um, Ed, I, I know you managed to catch this game. What were your, mm. what were your thoughts on it? It sounded like uh, if the lights had stayed off, it would have been a blessing because it it wasn't a thriller, <laughs> was it? No, it wasn't a thriller. It was quite two evenly sort of matched teams. I know Johnny Jackson in his post-match assessment thought that Wimbledon had the better better opportunities, and I'd say that for the for the lion's share sort of part of the game they did. Ali Alhamidi struck the post with a left-footed effort late on, and that was sort of the real pivotal moment. You know, Gillingham brought on some really experienced players. Johnny Williams being one, he floats the ball into the box, and uh, and it lands perfectly at the feet of Conor Masterson to score score the winner. Um, just a lapse in concentration costing Wimbledon a point when he, arguably they could have easily walked away with three as well. Um, I think Gillingham and Wimbledon are two teams that are probably going to be at this top end of this League Two table. But there's a little bit of a gap creating now between the sort of five top teams in the division and a few teams below who are sort of gunning for that final playoff spot. Um, Wimbledon obviously got that fantastic win against Notts County on the weekend where Ali Alhamidi once again caught the headlines but someone who I've been impressed with in recent weeks when I've when I've watched Wimbledon when I managed to catch them is Connor Evans from Stockport on loan he's he was a player that Johnny Jackson when he meant when they did sign and was sort of really excited by they said that he'd been wanting to work with him for a while he's really impressed with him at Torquay when he formed that partnership with Armani Little so um, yeah I think he's someone that Wimbledon might be attempting to sign on a permanent because he's looked really good in, in recent weeks. Um, the game as a whole, uh, a missed opportunity to to stay within that sort of touching pack, as I mentioned, there's a little bit of a gap performing, but Wimbledon have been in general a little bit inconsistent in their performances, sort of streaking together a couple of impressive wins and then falling to a defeat. But um, they need to try and rack up a few points because in the not too distant future, Ali Alhamidi, one way or another, will be leaving for the uh, Asia Cup in January and uh, obviously January window opens as well. So they, uh, there's a few crucial games coming up. They obviously have Ramsgate in the FA Cup uh, on Monday, which uh, the first time television crews will be down to Plough Lane since it reopened. Uh, I think Ramsgate has sold out their away allocation. They are the lowest ranked team left in the competition. So plenty of narratives, but also Wimbledon a, a one-tie one round away again from a, another Chelsea-esque sort of cup tie, which was uh, massive, obviously, at the start of the season. Do you think without Hamadi going away in January, does that affect the likelihood of him? Sort say, say there was interest and there was mm. a you know a deal to be done. Do you think how much do you think it affects it? It depends how long Iraq are in the in the competition for. Uh, it looks like it stretches beyond the January transfer window from when I've had a look at it. But obviously, that means that they'd need to make the sort of latter stages of the competition uh, there's obviously interest Stoke City have sort of moved ahead in the sort of pecking order from what I can gather in terms of they're the ones who are quite hot on on looking at him and and have been watching him quite interesting uh, I've been watching him quite a bit um Leeds United obviously as we reported a few weeks ago but um you'd imagine that Wimbledon would want to get the deal done as early as possible to try and find a replacement this can't be one that goes into the final week of the window where like uh, they get their best player snatched away from them and then they're left scrambling around to try and find replacements. That's obviously what happened with Oli Palmer. They brought Sam Crosgrove in, didn't work out. Ayubasau left. Uh, from my recollection, that was one that at the start of the window, but they never really replaced him properly. So you'd hope that there's a succession plan in place because this, this guy's picking up interest left, right and centre. Everyone's talking about him after games. He comes inches away from giving Wimbledon the win on Tuesday night again. He is 
uh, a cut above League Two, in my opinion, every time I watch him. So quick, so direct. Um, yeah, and I imagine that Wimbledon are going to be wanting a club record fee, so they're going to be uh, hoping that this gets wrapped up quickly if he is to move. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, I was going to say that another sort of point of issue that I could raise is that uh, Morgan Williams' loan at Woking, he um, he obviously went on, on loan for the month of November. Uh, as far as I can tell, that's being reviewed on a month-by-month basis. He obviously did very well in his first start for the club. That game up against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, where he really controlled the midfield, gone out to Woking, won their player of the month last month and has looked really good. So um, that's one that they'll keep reviewing as long as you know, he's an 18-year-old getting minutes out there. So I imagine that the club are very happy with his progression. We're going to bring a close and end to episode seven of the South London Press Football Pod. We're absolutely flying through these, Rich. So yeah, it's uh, it's going well. Thank we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see what happens with the Christmas schedule. That might that might play yeah. havoc at least between Christmas and New Year. But we'll look to get another couple out. I don't necessarily think there'll be any kind of breaking managerial news, but you never can tell with. Uh, <laughs> with the teams that we've got but um where you're off to palace at the weekend and obviously um, uh, palace west ham on sunday yeah should be uh should be a, a classic hopefully all eyes on whether jared bowen as obviously by the time we come out we'll know whether he's played or featured for west ham in the europa league but that could mm. be a, an interesting bit of team news um i, I need to get rid of Eze. he was my captain last week and <laughs> only got me two points so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've, made, I've made some slightly dodgy, dodgy decisions in recent weeks. Not been too happy with my managerial uh, rotation of my team. So, and I don't think to... I wanted to ask you. You haven't. Um, there's been a period of silence in the, the chat on <laughs> athletic managerial football manager uh, career as well, because you haven't had too much time to dip into that. So, um, I played a little bit that. last night. Played okay. a little bit last night, and in my final friendly game, Corey Blackett Taylor's picked up an injury, so yeah, not looking good. And I've also spent the budget, so uh, I need to uh, look at getting players off the wage bill before I can bring in some defensive uh, sort of additions to the squad. So that might actually mimic real life. I'm not saying Charlton yeah. have to absolutely get players out, but uh, maybe you'll have more success in terms of. Uh, shedding some of the players that, uh, yeah. that you don't want. There's lots of interest. People want Cardi, people want McGrandles and uh, Kirk as well, but I'm not letting them leave unless it's for the right price. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what the remaining weeks of the window bring. Uh, yeah, perfect. Join us again soon and thanks for listening.